Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Wyoming U.S. Representative Liz Cheney cast her vote to do away with the Affordable Care Act this week. The system is failing, and because people have got to be able to get access to affordable care, and in the current situation, they just can't. Leadership of the Casper Police Department continues to be scrutinized for an alleged hostile work environment. This is something that needs to be investigated immediately. We'll look at the debate over concealed carry on the University of Wyoming campus. How can we progress as a society if we don't ask difficult questions? Plus a look at the return of wolf management to the state of Wyoming and the importance of humanities at UW. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney helped her party pass a historic bill to unwind Obamacare this week, but its chances of passage in the U.S. Senate remain far from certain. Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. After House Republicans passed their bill to overturn Obamacare, they walked out of the Capitol and were greeted with a few hundred protesters who were chanting shame. Wyoming Congressman Liz Cheney was undeterred. It was really, um, it was uh, great to get it done. Um, it was uh, nice that we had the votes and that we were able to do it and deliver. Um, and I just, I feel really proud that we've, we've been able to keep the promise that we're going to, you know, help rescue um, the American people from what's really been a failing system. But you, you, we hear the backlash right but here. You know what I'd say? For something that is President Obama's signature achievement, this is a pretty small crowd. You know, when you think about all of the, you know, um, mistruths that have been told about it, um, you know, they've got, I don't even know how many folks out there, but certainly not as many as you would expect. Cheney says the bill is vital for states like Wyoming. I mean, I think it's crucially important that we give people relief from Obamacare. Um, You know, and it's important, first of all, because the system is failing and because people have got to be able to get access to affordable care. And in the current situation, they just can't. And particularly that's true in a place like Wyoming. Um, where the cost of care is high and where we're rural. But even many Republicans oppose the bill, which grants waivers to states and could allow them to deny women maternity care or to charge sick people more money. New Jersey Republican Leonard Lance opposed the bill and says it should have been bipartisan. I uh, am opposed to the bill, and um, I think the Democrats should come to the table on the issue of the exchanges, which I think is uh, an area that needs reform immediately. Exchanges are the marketplace where consumers purchase insurance. In Wyoming, residents only have one provider to choose from, and many lawmakers say that shows the system is broken. Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Ryan Costello says he couldn't support the measure because he says it opens the door for the health secretary to undo Obamacare's mandate that people with pre-existing conditions can't be denied coverage. States are allowed to ask for waivers to allow insurance companies to not protect those people. My principles have always been making sure that we have affordable access to coverage for all Americans, and I believe that uh, the pre-existing conditions protection should be without contingency. But Cheney denies that's the case. She says protections for pre-existing conditions essentially remain. Yeah, I just don't think that's true. If you look at the language of 
the underlying bill and the language of the amendments, it's very clear what the conditions are under which states could get waivers. Um, there's no waiver of the prohibition against denying coverage. The issue has to do with the cost of coverage, and, in, and there are only limited circumstances, and those have to do with when people have been without coverage for six months, and a state has to have its own pool in place to provide um, cost mitigation uh, in the circumstances where people might be affected by that. Many rank-and-file Republicans were grumbling that party leaders and President Trump forced them to vote on an unpopular bill that may never see the light of day in the Senate. But Cheney says the effort had to start somewhere. Look, I mean, the, the Senate, you know, we'll do our job over here, and then we send it over there, and they're going to have to do their job over there. Other Republicans are mad that the latest version of the GOP bill was never analyzed by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office after numerous provisions were added at the last minute. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso is a leading voice on health reform, and earlier this week, he was still scrambling to figure out what was in the bill. Well, I still want to see what's in it. They're, I guess, adding some amendments. And I, I asked earlier today for a copy of what the amendment was, and I haven't seen it yet. Many Republican senators are now demanding major changes to the House bill, like fully funding Planned Parenthood and changing the pre-existing condition language. Still, Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi says Senate Republicans must get over their disagreements and pass a bill. America is going to have to get over it because the system is going to implode on itself. There are um, too many things that make it a bad health insurance situation. There are a lot of people that don't sign up until they get really sick and they don't make any payments and they get fixed and they drop out of the system as soon as they're fixed. They never paid a dime. They've got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of care. Um, a system can't work like that. So what's the path forward in the Senate? Well, that would be strategy, wouldn't it? <laughs> and you know I don't share that. I just keep working it. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Over the last several months, there have been growing concerns about the Casper Police Department. First, female residents said their sexual assault cases were mishandled. Then, a third-party survey revealed low morale amongst police officers and potential leadership problems. Now, as Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, Casper awaits the results of multiple investigations. When women first approached Casper City Council last fall to ask why the Casper Police Department didn't appear to be concerned with their sexual assault cases, it started a long series of discussions of internal operations of the Casper Police. Initially, the city council was very defensive of the police department. Councilwoman Amanda Huckabee was elected in November and has worked hard to change that attitude. We as a city council, it's our responsibility to address this. City attorney Bill Lubin has cautioned Huckabee and the rest of council at length that they cannot be involved in personnel matters at city departments including the police. Recently, that advice has been ignored. The trigger appears to be a survey that landed in the hands of Mayor Kaneen Humphrey. I was given some copies last night by the Fraternal Order of Police of a survey that was completed of our law enforcement members. There are some things in the survey that are a little bit alarming, and I recognize that there are always two sides to every story. The Fraternal Order of Police is a nationwide organization of sworn law enforcement officers with thousands of local branches called lodges, including one in Casper known as Lodge 6. After hearing concerns about Police Chief Jim Wetzel, Lodge 6 surveyed 84 people who work for the police department. The responses described a chain of command that prevents officers from doing their job, 
like investigating cases of sexual assault. Councilwoman Huckabee read some of those comments aloud at a city council meeting. Oftentimes, cases that are more interesting to command are assigned and override any other cases, causing serious issues. Therefore, the investigating officer gets the heat from citizens and prosecutors that the officer doesn't deserve. Chief Jim Wetzel declined an interview with Wyoming Public Radio. Other comments accused the city's administration of ignoring these concerns. Two days after the survey was released by the mayor, city manager V.H. McDonald announced his retirement. While the survey paints a bleak picture of the police department, not all Casper citizens are convinced that the results are accurate. That's because none of the people surveyed were identified. Casper resident Kyle True raised that issue at a recent city council meeting. Every person has a right to listen to and to see and understand their accusers. And I think what we see in this is on one side there are anonymous We don't know who they are, Fraternal Order of Police, complaining about vague problems with we're not happy where we work. The Fraternal Order of Police has declined to publicly discuss their survey. While some residents are skeptical, others believe that officers are going unnamed because they are fearful of retribution. Another thing that was mentioned is 49 employees were looking for other work. Mayor Humphrey recently told city council that's a concern. I want everybody to know that I support our officers and I want to keep our officers here and keep our community safe. So I'm not sure it's as easy to replace them as as we think it would be. All of this has pushed city council to pay for an outside review of the Casper Police Department. It will look at such things as workload and will review the department's investigative process. Councilman Jesse Miller said it would be good to put the issue to rest before hiring a new city manager. I think it's important to have an impartial review of uh, the police department specifically and have that available to whoever steps foot in uh, that position. Councilwoman Huckabee agreed. It is not admirable of us to bring in a new city manager into a mess we created and expect them to clean it up. I think that's our responsibility. The results of the outside investigation are expected by September. But there's more. This week, interim city manager Liz Becker told the council of an additional investigation of the police department. Your Honor, there is an internal investigation going on now that we have, um, we're waiting, we are waiting the results on that um, Judy Studer, who is a local attorney, has been conducting. The future of Chief Jim Wetzel could hinge on the results of those investigations. He says he has no plans to resign. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. Coming up, we'll hear about how the humanities fit into the mission of the land-grant university in the face of budget cuts. And later on, we'll explore the controversy over concealed carry permits on the UW campus. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. As the University of Wyoming faces steep budget cuts, the university community is revisiting which programs are core to the land-grant mission. To a lot of people, it feels like the humanities are at odds with the sciences. 
and both of them are at odds with applied disciplines. But one English professor has taken a look at the history of the land-grant university and found that none of that is quite true. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Jones reports. In the humanities, unlikely ideas come together. Lawrence Weschler is a former New Yorker magazine staff writer and an expert on the humanities. He recently visited UW to talk about where science and the humanities meet. He says they're not so different. Out of the humanities, you can have literature and you can have visual arts and you have sciences. I mean, sciences are one of the great expressions of the human spirit. But as the University of Wyoming has to find places to cut funds, expressions of the human spirit, whether scientific or poetic, can seem less essential than career track programs. My personal opinion, I really like to see our university look at educating kids for jobs and things we have in Wyoming. That's Wyoming Senator Ogden Driscoll of Devil's Tower. He serves on the Appropriations Committee, which oversees UW's budget. He says getting people jobs in Wyoming industry should be the university's top priority. Probably the priorities that the legislators shown has been through funding beyond the block grant, which to a large degree has been engineering and, and technical end of things. So as the university weathers a financial crisis, what's a good vision for its future? Jobs? Expressions of the human spirit? Scott Hankel is assistant professor of English and African-American and diaspora studies at UW. He says the humanities have been a central part of the land-grant university mission since the beginning. In fact, it's hard to imagine the land-grant university without the humanities. In the early part of the 19th century, schools of divinity, schools of medicine, schools of law were the norm in the higher education landscape. And the people who set up the land-grant university mission wanted a more universal education. Henkel says the idea of the land-grant university is to educate anybody who wants to go, regardless of their wealth, to provide wide foundations for students to stand on, and intellectual rabbit holes where they can follow their curiosity. He says a land-grant university is inherently democratic. Unlike professional schools or private universities, it can broadly educate a broad citizenry. But can a land-grant university do all that with decreasing funding? We are in a situation spanning back three, four decades now, where perpetual cuts to the university make it more difficult to carry out our mission, which in turn becomes a justification for more cuts to the university, which makes it even harder to fulfill our mission. It is true, I think, that when we're working on our strategic plan or when we're looking at budgets, we have to be strategic. That's UW President Lori Nichols. I mean, there because we can't just do everything. We don't have enough people or enough money to cover the waterfront, probably in the way many people would love to see it happen. So there are times when you have to prioritize. President Nichols says that as university officials decide what to cut, they're keeping the land-grant mission in mind. She says she doesn't want to see UW simply become an engineering or teaching school. She says the priority is students on a big scale. I will say that we're looking at a few programs for potential elimination, but it's not driven by whether they're a science or a humanities. It's literally driven by enrollment figures. So has this been a major that has attracted students over the years and has it graduated students? That's a pretty utilitarian approach. The good of the many over the good of the few. With that philosophy, can UW continue to serve individual students who follow niche curiosities? Will eliminating small programs weaken existing ones? Both President Nichols and Hinkle 
hope consolidations will strengthen programs and that everybody will be able to find an intellectual home at UW, although that's not guaranteed. But if the humanities can encompass scientific and poetic expressions of the human spirit, Hinkel says maybe they can even help the university through times of budgetary scarcity. One of my favorite writers, Benedict de Spinoza, said that joy was a person's passage from a lesser to a greater degree of freedom. If the humanities work at the University of Wyoming can bring a little bit more joy in Spinoza's understanding to everyone, then I think that we've done our job. Scott Hankel will give a talk on Monday afternoon at the Gateway Center in Laramie, exploring the history and future of land-grant universities and the humanities. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Erin Jones. Vertical Harvest is finishing up its first year of operation. The hydroponic, or soilless, greenhouse is located in downtown Jackson and not only provides locally grown produce, but also employs 15 people with intellectual and physical disabilities. There to document the experiment in food production and innovative employment was filmmaker Jennifer Tenekin. She joined me near the end of principal filming for her documentary, Hearts of Glass, and says she was drawn to the project because of Vertical Harvest's unique community. I've realized that all of the films that I've done have community at the heart. So whether it was focused on a a bar, uh, as in uh, the Stagecoach Bar in American Crossroads, or a conservation icon like Burt Raines, you know, where you touched on the conservation community. Uh, All of my stories focus on community and that we have more similarities than we have dissimilarities. You gave a talk recently at the Shepherd Symposium for Social Justice. How do food and this vertical harvest and social justice go together? I would start by saying that uh, we have faculty members from the University of Wyoming on board as advisors for the film. You know, the film is not a promotional piece for Vertical Harvest, but an examination of this very innovative approach they're taking to address, I would say, social issues, right? Local food production, sustainability, um, also the inclusive and integrated employment model. You know, social justice in, in this case, I think, refers to um, the availability of local food, locally produced food, and also primarily the inclusive work opportunities for uh, an underestimated and underemployed workforce. What has surprised you most about documenting the first year of Vertical Harvest, knowing that it's not quite over yet? Right. I think what surprised me the most is it's, you know, it's a startup. No one has ever done this in combination, right? It's cutting-edge technology. So you've got the technology angle. Uh, It's a hydroponic vertical farm at 6,200 feet in a purpose-built building. So that's one of the things that separates it from other vertical farms that often may go into an existing building sort of retrofit, the, you know, extremely small footprint, and then add in the innovative uh, employment model there are a lot of moving parts. So in the same way that I'm sure Vertical Harvest has been surprised by all the different, maybe not surprised, they knew it was there, but there are a lot of moving parts. And I think the same goes for trying to film all those things, you know, trusting that we'll be there for the right moments or to capture enough moments of the drama of the production part and the technical part, but also make sure we're there for the right dramatic moments for our characters. And I guess 
I should have assumed that we would have so many characters or it would be so hard to figure out who our characters are. But uh, we have a lot of personalities in the greenhouse and a lot of compelling characters. So I think we start with uh, kind of a cast of thousands and then we'll have to we'll have to whittle it down um, because we're aiming for a one hour documentary, not a 18 part miniseries. Although I think we could do that. (laughs) This was a fairly expensive project to get off the ground for them and singular in a lot of ways. Do you think that this could be a model for other places? I do. And I I think that they very much want this to be a replicable model. I think at this point, they're not there. And they would they would admit that themselves. Um, So it's a an iterative process, I think, to figure out what replicability means. It is super innovative. And, you know, Jackson has the resources to be able to do that. And with the intellectual and financial capital, they're more resilient. They they can kind of dial it. And then maybe another community that doesn't have quite quite the same amount of resources. Not everyone is going to build a $3.8 million greenhouse, but there might be parts of it are, that are replicable and could transfer. I also think, you know, Jackson is unique in that I think most people would particularly outside of Wyoming, would perceive it as a little, a rural Western town. And um, it certainly has, you know, aspects of that, but it also has aspects of an urban community, an urban downtown, right? Land values are off the chart. There's not a lot of buildable land. 97% of Teton County is publicly owned and therefore undevelopable. So, you know, it's the same problem that New York City would have or, you know, Chicago or another urban center with high land values. So to me, one of the exciting things is the replicability could be in an urban zone, but also in a a rural zone. It has it's a hybrid in some ways. What are your hopes for this documentary? Well, my first hope (laughs) is that we finish it and we produce something wonderful. Um, and we are still, you know, since we're still in production, uh, the end is, is, a, is, is a bit in the distance. But we hope to have a completed film funding and everything else comes through by um, the end of the year. But, uh, you know, what do artists, what, what do filmmakers want? They want people to see their films. We, we want people to see this. Uh, we want to, I think, take advantage of video on demand, which has really come of age in the last I don't know, three to four years. And, you know, we would love to never produce another DVD. We would love to go down the sustainable route. We don't need to use more plastic and create one more physical thing. I think it it also has a potential of being a, a tool for education, that it might have utility in schools to show this and to create conversations that are multidisciplinary around uh, sustainability, around local food production, as well as the inclusion and disability advocacy part. Even though it's a little funny, I, I keep going back to the, um, the Aristotle quote, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And these two things coming together, these two major things coming together is stronger than either part of the story about local food production and sustainability or the disability advocacy part that together they can also create a new community, which 
bonus for me because I'm all about community, right? These these groups that really did not overlap before. I mean, I don't know how much foodies or tech nerds really knew or interacted with the disability community. So it's an opportunity to create some new alliances. Jennifer Tenekin is a filmmaker and director. She's currently in production with the documentary Hearts of Glass. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for inviting me, Caroline. Coming up in the next segment, we will cover a disagreement between some students and a Wyoming lawmaker, and the state will once again be managing wolves. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming State Senator Anthony Bouchard has gotten his share of media attention over the last month for a tense exchange with three University of Wyoming students and a professor. It was over a project about how African-American males are perceived as dangerous. Since then, Senator Bouchard has publicly critiqued the university for its perceived liberal slant and pervasive anti-gun agenda. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter, Tennessee Watson, has more. On April 6th, Senator Anthony Bouchard attended a presentation at the Shepherd Symposium on Social Justice at the University of Wyoming. Three African-American students, Desmond Lewis, Tyrell Proby, and Gerard Swan, were presenting a public service announcement they'd produced for their first-year English class. You watch two men walk into a gas station. One guy, played by Lewis, uses the ATM, but leaves his cell phone behind. The second, played by Swan, sees the phone and runs outside. Swan hustles down an alley in baggy jeans with the hood up on his sweatshirt. Lewis misinterprets why he's being pursued. It never registers that Swan is trying to return his phone. Lewis draws a gun and fires. Swan lays dead on the ground. The PSA closes with the words, be smart before you take a heart. I wasn't there for the original presentation, but I caught their spiel about the project at an event called English Matters. Here's Tyler Proby. We live in a society that's driven off stereotypes. And when concealing carry and stereotypes merge, it creates a rise of concern. And Desmond Lewis says, they aren't even against conceal and carry. I mean, our dads have weapons and we're all for it, but I believe that a lot of incidents that have happened in the past and throughout history could have been prevented if we just had a little bit more uh, strenuous process. While they're not anti-gun, they've grown up during a time of increased attention to shootings of unarmed black men like Trayvon Martin, and they've had their own experiences being treated with suspicion. Tyler Proby again. I don't know, just being from Wyoming, a lot of people don't like see a lot of black people around and stuff. And so when they're not used to that, they kind of give you that eye, like, whoa, what's that person doing over here and stuff like that. So when their English teacher, Allison Grenant, asked them to produce a PSA that proposes a solution to a problem relevant to their lives, they focused on encouraging people to think about who they fear and why. Other students did projects on suicide prevention, dog adoption, and the dangers of texting while driving. 
but Bouchard heard about the now controversial PSA because their presentation at the Shepherd Symposium had conceal and carry in the title. He made the drive to Laramie to make sure a pro-gun perspective was present. This is a one-sided approach uh, pushing for more gun control. I'm glad that I went out there to, to show that this was happening. But it irked him when Gurnayat, the teacher, stepped into the conversation. Having been raised in Wyoming, she's no stranger to the gun conversation. Things got tense between her and Bouchard. But she says that grappling with ideas is exactly why the state needs more forums like the Shepherd Symposium. That's the nature of a university, exposing people to ideas that maybe make them and us uncomfortable. But Bouchard says she was pushing an anti-gun agenda, which prompted him to question whether the state should be funding her position. Grenant teaches in a program called Synergy. It's for students coming into UW with lower test scores or a lower GPA who need additional academic support. As a way to engage new students, Grenant asked them to start with personal experience. And that's how Bouchard comes to his opinions, too. I've lived uh, all over the country. I've seen where uh, self-defense is important, you know, especially in Florida, where there were, uh, heck, there were highway snipers there when I left there. And in Wyoming, Bouchard's personal experience at the Shepherd Symposium has him concerned about the overall campus climate. We've only got one view on campus. President Lori Nichols did oppose a bill co-sponsored by Bouchard to allow concealed carry on college campuses, but it's not as cut and dry as Bouchard says. And he might not know how student, faculty, and staff voices influence policy because he didn't go to UW. So where did you go to college? I, I, I went to... Uh, uh... Florida Junior College. It's renamed now, but... Uh... UW student Benjamin Wetzler is the incoming president of the Student Senate. This past year, he co-authored a bill addressing concealed carry on campus. Wetzler says the Student Senate worked hard to get feedback from students. Heavy, heavy amounts of student outreach. We had a survey go out this year that had over a thousand reviews on it. You know, we had six days of tabling where we would stand from 9 a.m. until 3, 4 in the afternoon in the union and talk to students, just continual conversations, and it comes out about split. After gathering input, a group of students went to Cheyenne to present to the Wyoming legislature a pathway to concealed carry on campus with certain considerations like keeping guns out of laboratories with dangerous substances. This is going to go forward. We only want to see it go forward where the decisions on where firearms are allowed to be is made through university policy, not through state policy, because we understand those ins and outs and the, the living organism that is the University of Wyoming better than anyone else does. As for the students who made the PSA, Desmond Lewis says they're grateful to be a part of a campus community with a lot of different opinions. We respect open-mindedness, and uh, listening and respect is key if you want to learn and if you want to get through to someone. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. July 3rd, 2013. 21-year-old Northern Cheyenne member Hannah Harris left her baby with her mom and went out. Hours later, she still hadn't come back to breastfeed her child. The police investigation was slow to start a search, and the family was forced to rely on word of mouth and social media. Still, it was five days before Harris was found, brutally beaten and raped, her body thrown in a ditch. Such stories are not rare in tribal communities. Native women are ten times more likely to be murdered than the national average, according to a Department of Justice report. 
That's why the U.S. Senate recently passed a resolution recognizing May 5th as the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards spoke with Carmen O'Leary, director of the Native Women's Society of the Great Plains, about her group's efforts to stop the violence. May 5th is Hannah's birthday, and there is going to be multiple activities going on around that to begin bringing recognition to the need for awareness and to increase the response across our agencies and the tribal level. For Native Women's Society, we are uh, supporting two of those activities. One will be at Pine Ridge, where um, a group of women have gotten together and they've identified 20 women who have been missing or had been murdered over the years, and they are going to be doing a awareness activity and a walk around that. And at Lame Deer, Hannah's mother has spearheaded a walk in recognition of May 5th as um, the Day of Awareness for Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women. Yeah, and there's and is there is there a, a an awareness of how severe this issue is? I mean, maybe you could talk just a little bit about what some of those statistics are for people who don't know. Right, and 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 there aren't statistics because so often um, there is no data. You know, if um, the cause of death is put down as exposure, or there's no known cause of death because a body was found too late then there is no statistics on that. Vicki Eagleman was like one of the first walks that I was able to go on, and that's been 10 years ago, and it was at Lower Brule where she didn't come home. Her mother reported her and reported her. 30 days after her missing date, there was a search, and she was found, and she had been murdered. And to this day, to my knowledge, that is one that has not been solved. And every tribe has these stories where there's been a body found in unexplainable circumstances and, you know, was put up to natural causes or exposure. You know, if you find a young woman hiding and freezing to death under a trailer, um, that's not natural. You know, what was she hiding from? Why, how did she end up under that trailer? Things that don't get answered by a full-blown investigation, I think. The women that got together and want to start something at Pine Ridge, it was a small group of women, and within their circle, they could identify 20 women. 20 women in one tribe. That's way too many women. There was no response. You know, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what is it that is um, maybe behind some of the, the cause of this epidemic for Native women to be victimized in this way? The causes there, you know, are many. In in our own tribal lands, um, I think we can talk about historical trauma. We can talk about the lack of resources, you know, foster care, boarding schools, all of those experiences that have come down through the generations that cause a lot of violence. But in the greater areas, I think that there's still this... um, lack of respect for Native women, um, you know, because in the urban areas, they don't seem to get a better response than we do in our own tribal nations. Right now, we have 22 programs that serve Native women, 
And what we want to do there, and we've begun talking about it, is to role model for other agencies that if a family reports somebody missing in our programs, the advocates find that out, that they do a response, that they reach out to that family to let them know that they're not alone, help them start gathering resources to make sure there's an investigation, to make sure that there's a search. Yeah. And and I, I understand that you have also um, been taking advantage of how the media and social media can help in these kind of cases to find women more quickly. Yeah. Amanda Takes War Bonnet is our media specialist, and she has um, built a page on Facebook. And specifically, if we come across um, anything about Native women who are missing, we post it there. There's so many things that that this could build out to in, in helping families find loved ones. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the traveling display of miniature dresses? Well, we've just gotten that started this last year, and um, we want to proceed with that respectfully. Our goal is to have a dress for each tribe in our coalition. Right now, we've only got two. One is um, Emily Bluebird from the Oglala Sioux tribe and her story. And the second one we have done now is Hannah's. But what we want to do for each of our member tribes is to have a poster series of those dresses so that they can all be displayed and to build that awareness and to let those families know that their loved ones are being remembered. We've been speaking with Carmen O'Leary from the Native Women's Society of the Great Plains. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Wyoming is taking over wolf management, again. A federal appeals court has entered its final order upholding Wyoming's wolf management plan. And so, the state will pick up where it left off five years ago, and wolves outside a protected area can be shot on sight. Penny Preston has more from Cody. Wolves in Wyoming were first protected by the Endangered Species Act in January 1995 when Canadian wolves were brought into Yellowstone by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Mark Brusino, who later served as Wyoming's large carnivore supervisor, was asked to help capture 14 wolves in Alberta, Canada, that were brought to Yellowstone that year. He says the biologists were working so hard, they didn't think about history. But then we started seeing it in the evening on the news, and of course there was a court injunction that temporarily stopped it and shut everything down for about a day. And then we realized that it was really an international event. Mike Phillips, Yellowstone's wolf biologist then, predicted. Sometimes wolves are going to cause problems, and those problems need to be rectified. That's, that's, that's fine. That's just the way it is. After 17 years under federal protection, Wyoming's Game and Fish Department took over wolf management in 2012. 
after the animals were taken off the endangered species list. Wyoming biologists trapped and monitored wolves in northwest Wyoming, and hunters killed wolves in the trophy game area just outside the parks. The animals were also killed as predators outside the trophy game area. But two years later, Wyoming's wolves were put back on the endangered species list after four environmental groups sued, saying the state plan wasn't strong enough to protect wolves. A federal judge agreed. In late April 2017, the Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. issued its final order upholding Wyoming's wolf management plan. Alan Osterland is the chief biologist at the Wyoming Game and Fish Cody office. We work very hard to manage all our populations, and wolves will be no exception. And I think our track record in the two years that we did manage them indicates that. Retired Yellowstone Park Ranger John Osgood agrees. Wyoming Game and Fish is an extremely able organization. I respect them a lot. Their integrity level is extremely high, and they are going to manage the population for uh, sustainability. But a retired wildlife ecologist in Cody, Chuck Neal, is concerned about Wyoming's dual listing. The dual listing was upheld in the federal appeals court decision. It means wolves are protected and hunted in the trophy game area, which borders Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. But outside the trophy game area, wolves are legally considered predators. Be treated as vermin, to be killed on site, anywhere, anyhow, anyway, anytime, over 85 percent of the state. Neal says wolves are top-level carnivores that are needed to help keep ecosystems in check. The also ecosystem was unraveling uh, prior to the return of the wolf 20 years ago. The president of Wyoming Outdoorsman, Gerald Yoakum, applauds the dual listing. I'm glad we stuck to our guns on it. We don't have a place for wolves throughout the state. Matitsi area outfitter Pearson Hodgins. You can't manage your elk or your moose or your deer or anything else if you can't manage everything that, uh, that affects their mortality rates. The Sierra Club was one of the groups that filed suit against Wyoming's 2012 plan. A Sierra Club senior representative, Bonnie Rice, said her group was disappointed with the recent ruling, but she said they accept it. Now, Wyoming's Game and Fish Department is preparing for wolf hunts. 22 years ago, Yellowstone wolf biologist Mike Phillips predicted biologically wolves would thrive in Yellowstone country. But he said the species survival would depend on local management. If we can develop that local ownership, wolf restoration is sure to succeed. From Cody, I'm Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. When we come back, a conversation with a man tasked with adding historical accuracy to a major Hollywood film. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The era of the mountain man was brief. 
The high point of the Rocky Mountain beaver fur trade was between 1820 and 1840. But the period still holds fascination today. Clay Landry has written extensively on the subject. He'll be speaking on nonfiction writing at next month's Wyoming Writers' Conference. As Landry told Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, he recently served as a historical advisor for the film The Revenant. The movie tells the story of Hugh Glass, who was left for dead after being mauled by a grizzly bear, and who then hunted down his former companions in revenge. Landry's job on the set was to get the actors into the mindset of a 19th century fur trapper. The basic thing that I started with was the the rifles, the guns, how to load, shoot, operate, and act like they've been handling those guns all their life. We took all of those skills and we incorporated it with the horseback, uh, you know, learning to carry those rifles of horseback and look like you're a mountain man that knows what he's doing with a gun when you're on a horse. But we also, I taught them how to throw tomahawks, build flint and steel fires, taught them a lot of history. A lot of sessions we would just start out with me talking about the history of the mountain men and why those men were out there, what was the motives and what were their cultures like. And the actors got very interested because it helped them get into character. There are so many little details that go into adding up to making something look period-specific or period-appropriate. I mean, it's not just about, like, what clothes you wear. It's about, to some degree, even how you behave um, and, and how you think. So that's that was part of the idea behind teaching them so much history, so that they really knew what they belonged to, what time period and what mentality they belonged to. That's true. And there were little things that would come up during the filming, like there was one scene that's in the film, there's a French guy walks up to the fort to try to gain entry, and the sentry yells out, white man at the gate. Well, when they first did that, they yelled, man at the gate. And I did my usual thing with the director. I said, time out here. Stop and think about this. There was a prejudice against Native Americans, of course. They didn't treat them on the same level. Uh, as they did everyone else. I said, they're going to differentiate who's at the gate. They're going to say white man. That one word made a difference in the psyche and explaining the psyche of that time. It conveys an attitude. And then there are also these, these tiny little things like how to drink hot coffee out of a tin cup. Share that tip with us. <laughs> well, the first thing I told them was, you know, never get it more than half full. Then you just take little sips and you'll be safe. But if you fill it up full of hot coffee and go to drinking it like you're, you're drinking a regular mug, you're going to burn your lips. Now, you, you yourself are a mountain man of sorts. Um, obviously, you, you use modern conveniences like telephones, but you also do horse packing and reenactments. Do you feel like doing a historical thing helps you to know it in a way that, that simply studying it academically does not? You know, I do, and and I got that tip years ago from a friend of mine, Hank Weiber. He wrote a book about the Custer Battle, and he grew up next to the Custer Battle. He was, His family owned a ranch there. He was what I call a practical historian because he tipped me off to things like that. He said, you know, I've ridden that route into the battlefield, that overnight route that Custer and his troops took. And he says, historians are saying that those guys went certain ways no real horseman would ever take. And, you know, tanks on the ground experience and applying it to that battle 
help correct some history, begrudgingly <laughs> uh, by the Park Service over the years. So I learned that I got that tip from Hank, and it, it fit right in with what I like to do. Now, you're going to be presenting uh, next month in June at the annual Wyoming Writers' Conference, and you're going to be presenting on uh, representing nonfiction. And so as a historian and a nonfiction writer, what tips from your experience are you going to be sharing with the writers who attend? I'm going to talk to them about the abundant resources that we have available nowadays as far as the ability to go look and read original documents from that period newspapers and diaries and original government documents. So so you can kind of glean the the story for yourself if you want to. Like the the Hugh Glass story, um, the first time it appeared in print was in March of 1825, and Hugh Glass was mauled by the bear in August of 1823. So for that time period, that's a pretty rapid dissemination of that story, you know. We have an abundance of things through the digital age that that we can access that used to take historians years to go from this archives to that archives across the country, you know, to put together information. So let me ask you then, again, about your fascination with this period of the mountain man. I mean, this is a pretty brief period in history when beaver pelts were highly valued uh, because of the fashions on the East Coast and in Europe. And once those fashions changed, the era of the mountain man pretty much ended. And so what does this brief window of Western history have to do with the present? Why still maintain interest in it? Well, for one thing, these were the first white men to see the the West in its natural state. There's a Charlie Russell painting that the title of it's when the land belonged to God. And I like to think these men, you know, were some of the first men to see this country when it still belonged to the natives and God. So the mountain men learned the geography, and they were there when the western expansion started in the 40s. And they were the guides and the the mental maps that helped these people learn the routes to get over to California and Oregon and, and promote western settlement. Whether you believe that's good or bad, that's your opinion, but that that's what they did. I mean, that's what their biggest contribution was. They weren't just beaver trappers. They were, they were explorers. And so, so uh, without the mountain men, you and I would not be uh, sitting in Wyoming and Montana having this conversation. <laughs> it could be a very different story, I think. <laughs> well, Clay Landry, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for calling, Micah. I enjoyed talking with you. Historian and writer Clay Landry is one of the faculty at the upcoming Wyoming Writers' Conference in Gillette, June 2nd through 4th. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of the show or want to hear it or a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can avoid worrying about missing a segment if you sign up for our podcast via the website or on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. Remember, we are always looking for good ideas for future shows. You can submit those to us through our website, again, at wyomingpublicmedia.org or at the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.